Hello and welcome to Listen Carefully. I'm your host Nathan Jolly and my guest today is Brandon B. Brown, frontman of Wheaters. Well, I'd like to start in the obvious place, mm-hmm. Teenage Dirtbag. <laughs> okay. That was a massive hit here. It was number one, mm-hmm. number two in England, but not so big in America. It didn't make the top 100 in terms of the singles chart. Not 23 years ago, no. No, yeah, well, since then, it's, um, yeah, charted, which is amazing. How was that when that song blew up? Because it was like an international hit. It was your first single on a major label. That's quite an amazing start to your career. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, We were, you know, we've been touring the States to support the release, and it hadn't, it did okay, but it didn't, like, you know, take the country by storm or anything like that. So we were at the point that, you know, four months after the release, we were kind of, it was actually more like five or six months after the release, we were still touring the States playing, you know, Lawrence, Kansas in front of two people. And um, we got home for Thanksgiving and I had bronchitis and everyone was kind of sick and real tired. And our A&R guy reached out and he said, he hadn't called us for months. And he said, um, you're going to Australia. And I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the hospital, man. What are you talking about? And he, and he goes, no, 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 really, you got you to, gotta, uh, you got to go to Australia. Uh, looks like it's going to do well down there. You got to, you got to be on TV and stuff. And I, I have to confess, I didn't really believe him until it, until I was on television, <laughs> you know, <laughs> until we were on the V channel. So, um, and it was weird because we came out of the cold of New York and we woke up in, you know, Gold Coast or wherever we wound up uh, for that first bit. And um, I got the best sleep of my life. I slept off that bronchitis real quick. I was, uh, I just got got to the hotel room and fell down on the bed and uh, with the uh, one of those hotels up up a few stories and in the sky over the beach and I just I opened the doors and the windows and I just let the sea breeze hit me because you know it's very different from New York in the wintertime and I I woke up maybe 16 17 hours later <laughs> felt like a new person you know and uh, and it was true we had a new career we had a new like everything had changed overnight for us and it was because of Australia it was really um, it was really, it all happened there first, so we'll always be grateful, you know. And then it knocked on to, like, Germany, it was big, England, yeah. Austria. Right. Uh, the UK was next. Did you chase it around the world? Exactly. That's exactly yeah. what we did for from February, March, April, May, and by the time uh, the summer rolled around, we were playing the Virgin Festival and Reading Festival, and um, uh, video was on... Uh, uh, doing well on um, Kerrang and all uh, all MTV and everything. BBC Radio One added it. Um, it was good. We had a good time over in England. We still do. We still have a lot of fun over there. We just did forty seven shows over there. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, well, it was England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, and and then we hit Ireland as well. So it was the UK and Ireland, and it was just like old times. It was <clears throat> pretty raucous, and um, you know, we think we sold out thirty. 33 or 34 shows out of 47 Wow! and the rest were really close. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Um, so we're, we're happy to still be doing it. It's like a childhood dream, you know, it's still happening. Did it drop off at any point? Yeah, for a while there. And I would say the mid aughts was a bit of a ghost town for us. Right. We didn't know what was going on. We had a few licensing requests and they always seemed to die on the vine, you know, um, come to find out that it seems like the original, master multi-track was lost oh right yeah so we were we weren't getting those licenses because there were no materials to to make the sync with and um uh, we wound up re-recording the the first album as you may know but uh 
Yeah, I noticed you did that. I was wondering yeah. why, if it was just so you could own the masters yourself or if there was an actual reason. To own them ourselves and also to replenish them. They were gone. Yeah. You know, all that hard work we had done. And I figured, and you know, still in my 40s when I decided to do it, to re-record that album, which, you know, had the energy of a 26-year-old behind it, you know, burning the candle at both ends kind of thing. It sounds very similar. Yeah, I think we got pretty close. I'm proud of it. I just cut the vinyl with my friend Paul down here in Brooklyn, and the vinyl came out nice. I'm excited about that. We attempted to change things, like going back and re-recording. Like, were there things that you went like the first time around you thought, oh, I wish that part in Leroy wasn't that, like words or anything like that? Or did you just go leave it alone? It's more of a replica. No, I think I think that we there were some mistakes that uh, that were sort of like important yeah, I know. What you mean. Yeah. In in hindsight, they were better than if we'd have gotten it picture perfect, you know. Yeah. So we recreated those. We made those mistakes again on purpose. <laughs> was that hard? Yeah, it was a pain in the ass. It was uh, it was really forensic, you know. It was yeah. like when you go into the studio to make a new record, your discovery, the discovery process is fueling the fire, right? You're discovering new worlds, new sounds, new kick drum, new new everything, new way to make a record, right? Yeah. With this, this was a forensic exercise. This was going back in archaeology, you know, like trying to figure out where the dinosaur was buried, you know. And eventually we got there and it was pretty gratifying to slog it out and get it finished. And now we have our own master. We were, we made ourselves whole again. Amazing. Filled the gap. Yeah. The first time around when you recorded that album, you guys were green. How was that studio experience? Because the was it did you feel expectations pressure or was it more like you were just going i can't believe they're letting us do this or did you feel ready like how was your mindset at the time well the record label had heard our demo of teenage dirtbag which was very close to the final um but didn't have real drums on it I had a drum machine and it was a drum machine that we had worked really hard at programming but we were still playing live shows with my brother and we had not had the opportunity yet to re-record everything uh, under one roof under the same roof so uh, the label was content to put those demos out and i went no 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 no. give us give us three weeks and fifty thousand dollars and they did it they gave it to us uh and the three weeks were spent and we the only place we could afford was my mother's house which was free and we piled all this gear into um into her basement and, and ran cables up and down the stairs and and all this and and made a homemade record uh over the course of three weeks we started the last week of February and we ended just about the third week of March or so, um, or two and a half weeks into March. And then, uh, then the, uh, the single came back mixed in April. Uh, David Thoner had mixed Teenage Dirtbag down in Nashville. I picked him because he had done For Those About to Rock. Amazing. He had an ACDC credit. So I was such a huge ACDC fan when I was a little kid and still am. So I was like, yeah. Maybe that's why the Aussies caught on to it. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> You know, it could have that shape, that, yeah. that punch, you know. But yeah, man, it was, uh, we got very, very lucky and we still are pretty lucky. You know, we had a, a record back in the day when it was like the, before the internet and somehow uh, the internet still keeps it going. So I feel really lucky about that. I really like the sound of the albums you made. The, the last two studio ones, so the ones around 2013, 2012, Right. The guitars are really kind of overdriven. Did you produce those records? Yeah. Yeah, that's all me. Yeah, they sound amazing. Do you engineer them as well? Yeah, I produce and engineer them. Um, 
it's funny that you mentioned those records because one of the pedals that I have been using in the last for the last about the last 10 years or 12 years is something called a, um, a Tonesar Open House. You see that black yeah. pedal just there on, I guess it would be your right, perhaps? Yeah. yeah. Next to the golden one. Well, that, yeah. that pedal right there is a, is a really wicked distortion pedal that has a lot of different uh, controls on it. And I have been experimenting with super saturation, you know, like... Uh, yeah, like, that's how it sounds. Yeah, like Dinosaur Jr. and um, uh, Leslie West from Mountain was one of those guys who had... Uh, Hendrix did it, um, a sort of super saturated sound where it's got harmonic content that it typically wouldn't just have by itself, you know, a guitar. Yeah, a lot of shoegaze bands use it as well. Sure, My, uh, uh, My Bloody Valentine... Yeah, and um, I think um, Smashing Pumpkins is you, borrows that shoegazy um, sort of yeah, definitely yeah. yeah intensity. But um, yeah, and Dinosaur Junior, like I said, was one of my one of my inspirations. Somewhere between Dinosaur Junior and um, Helmet and Willie Nelson and Ani DeFranco was where I was headed for our sixth and seventh album before we started re-recording the first. Yeah, I can totally hear that in both those records. Yeah. The Valentine one and the um the Pop Songs and Death was that two EPs or was that just the record? Pop Songs and Death is was sort of a, an eighties prog exercise a little bit. Like, right. Yeah. See, seeing how you know how how um how deep we could tune the sounds to be in in the electronic world, and uh, you know f experimenting with fake drums like a Prince record, like deep sounding snares and whatnot, and for the valentine lp and for what's going to be known as um beasts of the unknown which is a sort of the seventh album holder title kind of thing amazing i went into this sort of like well what well you know what is saturation how does it work can it work with jazz chords like carol let me show you like um if you listen to this if you listen to the song lullaby um which is one of the songs from the seventh album it's a single it's got this sort of like Like these jazz chords, right? Yeah. And the question I was trying to figure out is, could you make a recording where the harmony and the melody was that were those came from those jazz chords, but that was super saturated, like was like overdriven to hell, you know? <laughs> and what's, what is the shape of the sound, the overdriven sound that works like that? Um, so if you listen to Tipsy or, or the song Lullaby, uh, those two sort of early singles from album seven, if you will. Yeah. They're on streaming right now. You find that's, that's the experiment. Um, and in a sense, it feels cooler to do that kind of thing where you have two like prototype songs before you make a record. It's like, okay, can we do this? That's what happens when you throw it online. Are people going to complain? What's it going to sound like on Spotify? Like, it's going to be weird. Like what, you know, how does it feel? Like a proof of concept. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And see if it can work. See if you can make a new, hybrid you know so how far um, away is the new album um if we had tomorrow to start on it it would yeah. only be about three months okay yeah. but we we're on the road <laughs> we're on the road this year forever like i don't know if you saw what's going on on our tour dates but we're, yeah. we're in australia twice this year and in uh in the uk later in the year and return the states we're doing i'm doing more than i think maybe even close to 100 shows in america 
this well, year. It's a good problem to have. It is a great problem to have, except it, it means that you can't make a record. <laughs> yeah, course, so, yeah. so there goes album seven's on hold for at least a little while longer. But that's good because I would like it to die down for a little while so we can go back into the cave and, you know, or into the laboratory and, and be isolated and figure something new out, you know. How early did you get into production and engineering and that? Uh, from the get-go, when I was a real little kid, I was um, using my mom's tape reel-to-reel to record um, my guitar amps and, and try and, you know, at the time I was just trying to get Angus's tone, you know, just <laughs> to see if, I, see if I could do it, and I couldn't. Yeah. But I was getting other interesting things, yeah. learning how microphones work and trying to figure out, like, what sound is, you know, how does it work, how does it yeah. go get recorded. So when it was time to make the first Swedish record, and I had been in and out of studios a few times by then, engineering, watching other people engineer, dialing in my own guitar sounds, dialing in guitar sounds that I didn't necessarily like to see how they fit on records. That was another valuable lesson. Like, you know, if you're, if you're in a studio situation where you have to nail a performance and somebody else is telling you how to do your tone, it might feel wrong but it's probably a good learning exercise. You know, you get, you get your head around. Like what you don't want. Exactly. Or, or you learn that it doesn't work the way you thought it did. You right. know, like you might, you might learn something new. So that was um, the, it, through the early 90s and, and mid-90s, I was making records here in New York City for other artists or, or with other artists as a lead guitar player or a songwriter who played the guitar kind of thing. And all the while, I was sort of filling up the, the kit with things I could use to, to do the Weedis record, you know. Right. Were you stockpiling songs at the same time for that? At Weedis the same record? time. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. I, I, I had, um, the teenage dirtbag riff, this sort of, I had that in, um, I had that in high school oh, right. and the whole thing, it's like, it comes from this, uh, the sort of Mark Knopfler ripoff. Right, and then that sort of picking that he did, you can see him doing it in the video, he's got this. I was mimicking that, and I came up with my own sort of... Right. Which is a percussive, you have the in-betweens of the, you know, you're kind of playing the drums with your other fingers, you know. Yeah. So that, that I had in, when, I, when I was 16, but I didn't really know what a songwriter was then, you know, didn't, yeah. didn't really understand how that process would, would apply to me. So. <clears throat> when I was in my 20s is when I started to put those things to use and, and find my own voice and, and all that. And there was one record that I really found my own voice to, which was uh, the Indigo Girls' uh, uh, Rites of Passage. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can hear that. In, like yeah. similar kind of folksy. And yeah. As you said, exactly. you've got very percussive like guitar playing as well. Which very much so, yeah. All through your first record. Yeah. And that and, uh, and Graceland. Uh, those were the two records that I was driving around fixing printers for my day job, right? Yeah. In a in a like a little tie <laughs> with my little toolkit, and I was every every drive I was singing along to those two records. It's yeah. interesting because Graceland also has lots of different weird percussion, which I would say is a feature of your mm. first record. To the point yeah. where you had someone on stage who just handled the extra percussion and the turntables, didn't you? Do you still have <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, he he's my friend. He was my co-producer, um, right. Phil Jimenez. He mixed the new Teenage Dirtbag, Teenage Dirtbag 2020. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, he, he mixed that himself. So, um, yeah, he's a great guy. He's a very talented uh, artist in his own right. And he's, um, 
he's always been a, a close friend ever since like way before we this we we kind of hung out and did music stuff together and you mentioned like you had those little guitar bits when you're like early on at what point did you start kind of stockpiling songs and going okay this is going to be an album and i'm working on an album uh, if only in your head 1994 right was yeah. when i i gave um at my, i was still at my college and i gave a performance fronting a band that was one of my sort of early hardcore bands that i had the singer had left and we they chose me to to do some vocal or i convinced them to let me do vocal for a, i think we rehearsed and i did a single battle of the bands and um and it was nerve-wracking and weird and different and i wasn't ready but it was a good learning experience and that was when i started compiling the first i guess three weedest records or so yeah i was going to ask about that yeah how many you had like kind of in the bank yeah so there's some um, all the way up through uh to pop songs and death there's at wow. least one song on each of those records that i had in the 90s that i was already working with in the 90s and was the decision to hold them because they weren't ready or just because you thought oh, i'm gonna need horns on this or something like that yeah yeah i mean that's a weird question well that's a very good question that i that i find a challenge to answer because <laughs> it had a lot to do with like what the band at the time was capable of true yeah, right? yeah that makes sense so like the band the band that did the first tour for did the first record was a great band but i don't think that we were ready to do like you know the fall in love or valentine or any of that stuff that you were mentioning earlier it just yeah. wasn't we weren't there yet and then that includes me you know so even though i might have had some of that material way earlier i didn't have what it took to make that record yet and you also need to establish a sound so you can't be all over the place early yeah well that's true i mean the label would have been really confused if i came to them and said oh this is a great song that should follow up teenage dirtbag it's called from <laughs> listening to lightning <laughs> like that song's 11 minutes long you know they would have they would have laughed at me and how involved were you with the like did you get to choose your own singles and everything or was that just pure label stuff the first single was sort of like self-evident yeah label wanted teenage dirtbag first i wasn't going to argue with them the second single not so much the uk people had a clear vision that it should be a little respect. I was a little bit cagey about putting a cover out, but we had already done so well with Teenage Dirtbag, I felt like it was okay. Yeah. I would have walked away from the project had they said we're releasing a cover first. Yeah, why did you record the cover? So we, we had a series of covers that we were doing in the New York clubs in the 90s when we were playing shows from 97, 98, 99. Um, we did Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up To Be Cowboys. We did um, Jesse's Girl. We did uh, Surrender by Cheap Trick. Um, and Erasure was just another one of those like fun songs that we busted out just for the party. Yeah. But I will say that uh, beyond all those others, the Erasure track was one that we, that sort of melted into what we were at the time quicker. And it's down to the fact that that song is so well crafted. Yeah. And a little obscure. Yeah, it's just easy music because it's so good. It's such a well-done song, you know, better than anything we had. And I felt like when the A&R said, you should record that. And I said, really? Like, you think a cover? And, you know, it took us a very short period of time to lay that down. We didn't have a demo for that. We didn't have any bass tracks for that. The other songs we had already been working on, but this one, we just went boom. And 
it came out really well. It came out surprisingly well. And I was like, okay, this, this feels like us at the same time that it is an erasure tune. So I felt, felt like it was cool, you know? And it was a big hit in the UK as well. Yeah. It was our second single. It did really well there. Yeah. yeah. Was it number three on the pop charts or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. That's quite yeah. incredible. And Leroy as well. That was another hit for you guys. Leroy was an Australian song. We did that. We did the video for that down there in Australia. It was um, oh really? I didn't realize that. That's amazing. Yeah, it was kind of like the second single, so to speak. You know. Yeah. And the Australian uh, record label. You know, it's funny. It's like whatever territory you blow up in first, the regional offices of the record label kind of think you, you belong to them. Yeah, right? definitely. And in some ways, that's really good. Like, because then they feel proud that they they broke the record and they get to work on it, and they get it. And other, you know, markets don't. The other regional offices don't get it. And so, yeah, they can claim an ownership to the success. Yeah, and the Australian people were really nice to us about all that. They were kind of like, you know, we had come from the New York City big ivory tower record label place. Now, yeah. despite the fact that they let us produce our own record, which is weird in my mom's house. Very Yeah, weird. I'm surprised by that. Yeah. And nobody really talks about this, but Teenage Dirtbag is over four minutes long. Yeah. The, the, the single version is almost four minutes long. It's over four minutes. So that was like a sort of, we were breaking the rules there right away, just on the length of the track, you know? Yeah, true. So... It was a peculiar song to be thought of as a hit by anybody, let alone this major label that was like, yeah, sure, record it in your mother's basement. We'll put it out. And um, I think that when it didn't happen, those, those were all the excuses in, a, in the States. It was kind of like, that's yeah, too long. It's like we let these morons from Long Island record in their mother's basement. Of course, what did you yeah. think you were going to get? Well, there was that when Australia broke the record, it was like that was like vindicated. There was like, no, nah, no, nah, this is like, you know yeah that must have felt good for you yeah and i think that there was some pride at the australian offices of the label so and the radio stations and stuff so when we went to do leroy down there everyone was kind of excited about it we was like yeah let's stay here and make another single right here like let's do the video here you know so we did it at the hi-fi in sydney or was it melbourne uh, uh, in melbourne yeah i remember in melbourne that yeah in now, melbourne yeah. hi-fi yeah yeah yeah, it was, sorry, it was 23 years ago, so. Yeah, no, fair enough. 20, it was yeah. 24 years ago this month, I think. Yeah, we went back down in, like, February. I yeah. Think. Whew, man, so crazy. It was a quarter of a century ago, <laughs> almost. And you're going to be playing the songs in three weeks, and, yeah, yep, as you said, it's very a quarter much of a so. century ago. Yeah. Obviously, you can't have known that was happening at the time. Like nah, when you were writing those songs, you kind of been thinking, I'm going to be playing these in a quarter of a century. No, nah, no concept of where it would go or what it would be. Yeah. You mentioned um, Cheap Trick before you covered them and um, Jesse's mm -hmm. Girl, because I was wondering if Cheap Trick were an influence on your early stuff because yeah. they sound very similar. Yeah. Well, Robin, Robin Zander's voice in particular felt right to me. The uh, same with Rick Springfield in that same sort of high tenory kind of spot. Who were your influences songwriting was? Well... That's an interesting question because, you know, from that's a, there are age brackets for that. When I was eight years old to... Of course, yeah. Yeah, from when I was eight until I was about 14, there was no other band. It was ACDC. <laughs> and there was a lot of, like, pop in there, too. Like, I was into Prince, and I was... But my main band was ACDC. Yeah. And so I was singing along to Bon before I hit puberty and Prince before I hit puberty. So it was like I had all those high notes, and I was able to kind of keep them. Yeah. And uh, after that, it was like Metallica and Rush and uh, 
Iron Maiden and, and, um, you know, uh, and this is all stuff you're learning how to play on your own in your mom's living room, right? You're just kind of yeah. like hammering out how to figure, learn it yourself. There was a time when there was like almost, there was no ACDC song I couldn't play. I knew them all. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, like, it was all I did from the age of eight till 13, you know? <laughs> so, like, <laughs> um, but uh, then after that, I started sort of, after Rush, I started getting into sort of like, um, what, what at the time was referred to as alternative rock, the Pixies, Fugazi, Dinosaur Jr., um, uh, Sugar, Bob Mould's band. Yeah, um, yeah, I can hear that in your band as well. Yeah, there's, a bit, there's quite a bit of sugar in the production aesthetic at yeah. times. Uh, in particular, the, the Copper Blue record yep. was, was my favorite. And that's Gil Norton who went on to yeah, produce yeah. the Foo Fighters. Yeah, so, uh, so um, the... Uh, after that, I sort of like Ani DeFranco started getting way back into Paul Simon. Um, Willie Nelson was something from my childhood. Willie Nelson and Bob Marley were records that my parents had on the turntable, right? Right. Yeah. And I, as I got into songwriting and the more sort of sophisticated side of what music actually is, uh, in my late teens and early 20s, I really went back to Willie and Prince and Bob Marley and got into Ani DeFranco around the same time and a lot of sort of like the like I said the Indigo Girls and was was exploring these more complex and more like sort of I guess like traditional uh production studio arrangement songwriter stuff you know yeah like the masters yeah the masters yeah really like kind of learning or learning that you didn't know them you know <laughs> you know um yeah so and that that goes for willie big time i've been trying to prep this one willie song that was written by stephen Fromholz called i'd have to be crazy to fall out of love with you and those chords are nuts they're just <laughs> jazz there's nothing you learn in acdc can prepare you for any of this i'm trying to get my head around it so hopefully i can perform it with art opening for art on the tour next month that was brandon b brown from wheatus and as he just mentioned he's playing a solo set in australia Tune in here with Art Alexorkis from Everclear. That tour starts February 1. You can get tickets from everclearmusic.com. And he'll be doing a VH1 storytellers type thing where he explains how he wrote his songs in between them. So not just your usual gig. My guest next week will be Sally Seltman of New Buffalo and Seeker Lover Keeper fame. Until then... Thank you.